So I love the human race. I'm a big supporter, as you know. But we humans can be kind of silly sometimes. Right now, we're going through a COVID-19 pandemic, and this might actually just be practice for future pandemics and even worse pandemics to come. And the crazy part is that we're doing this to ourselves. So we're abusing nature, warming the climate, uh, persistent poverty, eating meat, even inventing more deadly viruses in laboratories. We're creating enormous pandemic risk for ourselves. And we don't yet have the strong global public health systems that we need to keep ourselves safe from this risk that we're causing. So it's all pretty mixed up, and we have a lot to um, think through if we're going to make the bright future for ourselves that we deserve. So let's dig in. This is the joy of saving the human race, where we try to get the world to cooperate. It's so the human race can avoid some urgent global problems that could mean the end of civilization and cause lots of suffering around the world. But also, we just want to have a good world that we enjoy and we can feel proud of. We are not just citizens of our own countries. We are citizens of the human race. Let's learn to manage ourselves responsibly. Let's help the human race act like it wants to last for a while. I think humans are awesome and the human race is worth saving. There is no time to waste, so let's do this. Hi friends, welcome to the joy of saving the human race. I'm Shelby Murtis. Thanks for joining me. I'm glad we could spend some time together. I just want to start by honoring you for being here and for listening and doing this mental work with me. Um, on this show and today, we talk about some of the dangerous stuff that humans face right now. And um, there's some big problems in the world. It can be so much easier to just tune out and ignore it and just let somebody else handle it. But that's not how these problems get fixed. And so they get fixed by all of us paying attention and then doing what we can to make the world better. So I just want to honor you for being here and digging in with me today um, to think about this stuff. So today's presentation, it's part of a series at this initial stage of, um, you know, the joy of saving the human race. Uh, it looks like about 11 episodes, which are just me sharing a bunch of ideas and information about um, these different issues. It's sort of the grand tour of, you know, the threats humanity faces right now and some potential solutions to these things, with a particular emphasis on international solutions, because these all tend to be global problems that require global solutions. Today's episode is about pandemics, uh, which you know is a big thing. You might have heard about it. Uh, there's this whole COVID-19 COVID thing happening. I just want to note that I'm recording this now toward the end of April 2021. Uh, this pandemic situation keeps evolving, so it could be that by the time you listen to this, there is new events in the world that I haven't talked about today. It's okay, and I expect this episode to be relevant far into the future, so I hope you'll still listen to it. 
because this is not just about COVID-19 and getting over this current issue and going back to normal. This is about preparing ourselves for future pandemics. And as we'll talk about today, we can expect future pandemics. Like this is not just COVID-19. We might have a COVID-21, a COVID-22, a COVID-30. Like there may be others on the way. So we want to get ourselves ready for this. So today I'm going to talk about why future pandemic preparedness is so important and some areas that we can focus on to make ourselves safer with an emphasis on global solutions because we want a cool world that we like, preferably without catastrophes. I kind of prefer my world without catastrophes if we can pull this off. I, I hope you're on board with me on that. So the first part of this will be talking about the risks that are piling up that are um, sort of self-created. And then later on, I'll talk about solutions and how we can create a safer world. So before I really dive in, I just want to point out two big themes here um, that you might want to hold on to. One is that the human race tends to tolerate way too much risk and not plan enough for the future. And this is on this pandemic front, but also in the many other big uh, threats that we face. We're just tolerating way too much risk and we got to get to work. The other big theme is that we need much more international cooperation. And part of the um, breakdowns we've seen with COVID-19 and our risk of the future is that we just don't have the global systems in place to handle this stuff. So we need to build those systems. Something about human nature that's difficult is that people seem to stumble from emergency to emergency and have a very brief attention span. So even after a big crisis, people then just sort of go on to the next thing and forget about it. And that could be really dangerous in this case. Um, historical, historically, people like don't always learn the lessons and then use that to plan for the future. So right now, you know, in the mainstream news media and with the people around me that I talk to here in the United States, People seem purely focused on like, when can I get my vaccine and go back to normal? Everybody's ready to just get vaccinated, go out and have a party and then live life as they did before. And if that's all we do, that's gonna be tragic uh, for a couple reasons. One really, really important thing to keep remembering is that viruses mutate and evolve over time. So the genetics change just a little bit over time. So with each person that gets infected, that's a chance of the virus mutating. So the more people get infected, the more chances there are for mutation. And if this goes on over time, more and more infections, then we could end up with a virus that's different enough than when we started. And so our vaccinations and our treatments don't work anymore because it's then a different virus. And so people in countries getting vaccinated might not be safe if we don't actually take care of it and, and wipe this thing out globally. And so um, I've seen sort of a selfishness around vaccines that we'll talk about later, but 
It's not enough to simply get your vaccine and then be safe. If the virus is still out there and still mutating, it can come back to you in a different form and make you sick again and make your vaccine not work. The other reason it would be tragic if we simply forget about this and move on is that there are other pandemics waiting for us. And so we need to create the system so that we're safe against these things, but also stop creating the increased risks that we're about to talk about. So um, unfortunately these days, I don't hear and see enough mainstream conversation about future pandemics. I hear mostly conversation about COVID sucks and how do we get over it and go back to normal. There is some conversation about future preparedness, but not nearly as much as what I'd like to see. So the outcome then is that if normal citizens don't really have this on their radar screen, then it won't be a political issue. And it really needs to be. We need to be pushing our government officials to prepare for the future and reduce our risk and make the kind of systems we need. So it's really up to all of us as citizens to be aware of this and push for that. Now, COVID-19 is not the catastrophic risk that I worry about on other fronts, you know, like the climate change and destruction of nature and nuclear weapons and all that kind of stuff. Um, but the next, the next pandemic might be that kind of huge risk. I don't want to minimize any of the suffering that's happening right now. I mean, there's people dying, there's people losing jobs, there's like horrible hardship happening as a result of COVID-19. But in the grand scheme, COVID-19 is not nearly as bad as it could have been. So, you know, during this time, this relatively minor virus killed millions of people shut down much of society, almost broke the global economy, um, cost governments over $20 trillion in economic stimulus to try to keep the economy afloat. But many people kept working, food got delivered, stores stayed open, and at least the basics of survival continued to function. But we should think about what if a pandemic was so bad that people could not or would not go to work. So imagine if it was so bad that the food didn't show up because the people who grow the food, transport, transport the food, you know, work in the stores weren't showing up to work, either because they got sick or because they're too scared to leave home. Um, those systems could break down. Or what about police and firefighters and other emergency personnel aren't showing up to work? What if our frontline healthcare workers, like doctors, nurses, whatever, in hospitals, either like fall ill or just are afraid to show up to work? So these are the kind of things that we have to think about in keeping ourselves safe because this kind of scenario I'm describing, it's entirely possible. Like I'm not just exaggerating to make a point. You know, you'll see as I talk more that the risk of this is growing and growing. So I don't think that a pandemic could end up being bad enough to like kill everyone and wipe out humanity and, you know, like it's not an extinction level thing. 
but it could be bad enough that it shuts down our economy and shuts down society and makes some of the basics of life just not function anymore, um, which then could cause massive hunger and other disruptions, destabilize governments. Um, it could be pretty bad. So I want you to just hold on to that possibility as we talk about pandemic risks that are piling up. So in the past, we have had other pandemics, and luckily they just didn't get as bad as COVID-19 did. Uh, in 2009, we had the H1N1 swine flu. It started in North America in pigs. It killed hundreds of thousands of people around the world. Uh, the virus H5N1, the avian influenza virus, um, started in 1997, ran for a few years. This started with poultry in China. 60% of the people who got that disease died who caught it. It's very deadly. Now, fortunately, that one is not as transmissible person to person as COVID-19, so we didn't have a huge number of people getting infected from it. But those who did, it's really dangerous. Um, and similar, uh, there was Ebola. So Ebola outbreaks have happened in Africa since the late 1970s. The biggest one so far was in 2014 and 15, killed thousands of people. On average, it kills over half of the people who get infected from it. They have pain, vomiting, diarrhea, heavy internal bleeding. It's just a horrible disease. People typically catch that through contact with blood or other bodily fluids of a person who's infected. So luckily that's not an airborne disease, but still it's spread enough that a lot of people died from it. Now we're on to COVID-19. It's far less fatal than those other things. You know, um, estimates vary, but I've heard in the range of one to 3% of people who catch it die from it but it's far more transmissible. It spreads person to person very easily. And so a lot of people have gotten it. So even a small percentage of a lot of people dying, it still ends up with a lot of deaths. And it's really a huge concern as we've seen. So these ones I've talked about so far have been either highly fatal or highly transmissible. They've been one or the other. If we get a disease that is both, that kills a high percentage of people and spreads easily, we're fucked. Like that would be a serious catastrophe. Millions of people would die. Economies would crash. There would be serious instability in the world. Kind of the scenario I talked about a moment ago. So our pandemic risk has been brewing for a while, for a few decades now. So we've had an explosion of human population. So in about the last 200 years, human population went from 1 billion to now almost 8 billion. So that's times 8 in 200 years. And it's doubled in just the last 50 years. So we have a lot of people on the planet. The planet is becoming crowded with humans. Um, and we can expect that population to increase by about 10 billion uh, by 2050. Then on, a to on top of the pure population, 
um, we've become more urbanized over time. So people are in closer contact with each other and more able to share germs with each other. So um, in 1960, we had about 1 billion people living in urban areas. Now we've got over 4 billion people uh, in urban areas. So that's quadrupled in about 60 years. And then by 2050, we can expect over 6 billion people living in urban areas. So um, I'm not saying that we should all get out of cities and spread out over the countryside because us living in um, urban areas protects the environment because I don't really trust most humans to go live out in nature and do that responsibly without hurting nature. Um, but the downside of our urbanized way of living is that we trade germs with each other more. Then combine this with poverty. So um, about one-third of those urban people live in slums. So slums are areas where, you know, substandard housing, sort of rickety, um, without like decent water and sanitation and all the sort of basic infrastructure that many of us take for granted. Um, and this is just a horrible pandemic risk because people are in tight quarters and it's unsanitary. Then another figure is that in the world, about 3 billion people do not have sanitation or clean water. Now that's both urban settings and rural settings, but that's 3 billion people in the world who cannot wash their hands in the middle of a pandemic. And that's one of the things that's been recommended to us is like, wash your hands, stay clean. But 3 billion people just can't do that. So on top of COVID-19, imagine all the other germs that are possible in that kind of situation. And then the other poverty angle is poor health care, poor public health systems. So people just aren't, in many cases, going to doctors or going to decent medical facilities. And so we just don't have that infrastructure to manage disease in uh, poorer places. And then a really big one is that the world has become more globalized, more interconnected. And so there's plane travel, there's global trade. And so really wherever a disease pops up in the world, it can quickly spread everywhere because we have such an interconnected um, global travel. So it makes spread of disease far more easy. So another growing risk of pandemics comes from us destroying the natural environment. There's about a hundred other reasons why we should be protecting nature instead of destroying it. But one of them is that it'll make us safer if we stop destroying nature. Lots of scientists who study disease tell us that many other viruses in animals could make the jump to people. So we humans are part of nature and part of ecosystems, whether we choose to remember that or not. So we are mammals. And viruses and bacteria are also part of nature. And so there are plenty of these illnesses that can um, live in various animals. So another animal and us too. And so um, 
as our relationship with nature changes radically, we'll become even more vulnerable to disease. So right now, animal and insect populations are plummeting. We're in the middle of the sixth mass extinction, where it's the sixth time in the Earth's history that we've had species going extinct this quickly. The last time was 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs died off. And because of all these extinctions, ecosystems are getting wacky. Things are just sort of unraveling. And germs, like the rest of nature, are starting to act differently. And then on top of this, climate change is like putting nature in a blender. Like it's just, it's shaking up everything and making everything go haywire. So um, climate can make certain diseases spread their footprint that they happen in. Um, and one way is through insects. So a disease like malaria, which kills hundreds of thousands of people every year, um, happens typically in tropical places that are warm. But as climate change continues, that warm area will grow. And so you could start to see malaria more prevalent in like Europe or North America or something because that footprint has grown from climate change. And then on top of all this, our interaction with nature is different. So humans are now intruding on nature in a way that they haven't been before. Like areas of really deep nature, like rainforests. Um, there have always been indigenous people living in these places, but those people lived there generation after generation and have developed some immunity to the microorganisms that are living in that place. But now we've got outsiders going in there to build roads for logging, mining, farming, etc. Various exploitations of nature. And so that creates more interaction between outside humans and the animals carrying those viruses that are living in nature. So workers who are going into these places then bring it home to their families or to their village where they live. But then also when these natural places are cleared for logging, farming, whatever, the animals that were living in that place are chased out. And so if they're lucky, there's an adjacent, you know, part of nature for them to live in, but often it sends those animals into nearby villages and towns where people live. And so there's even more interaction between these microorganisms and, and people nearby. And then also we've got wet markets that we've heard about, which are um, basically taking wild animals that are hunted and killed and bringing them to people, usually for food. And so wild animals are traded and sold and they're carrying disease with them. And this is not just happening in China. Um, this happens in a bunch of other countries too. And we need to pay attention to this. Now, just know that basically forever in human history, humans have eaten wild animals. Like there's nothing new about that, but the demographics have changed. So now there's situations where those wild animals are being caught and brought into cities 
to be sold. So they're being brought to these population centers where it can, you know, disease can spread easily. And then with their interconnected world, that disease can hop on a plane and go to some other country. So the wild animals um, being eaten from wet markets is now a global uh, situation. So in addition to these wild animals, we also need to deal with domesticated animals um, in farm-raised meat, because many scientists are concerned that the next pandemic could come from a meat farm. So the hamburger or chicken or whatever that you eat could be contributing to our pandemic risk. So remember that viruses and bacteria are always evolving and they can evolve into something harmful to humans. So remember the H1N1 virus from pigs or the H5N1 virus from poultry. These viruses have jumped from chickens and pigs to humans and killed hundreds of thousands of people. Um, and the more animals there are, the more chance there are for mutations. And so the mutations over and over, it can turn into something that becomes dangerous to us. This general phenomenon is intensified by the unnatural conditions that happen on many farms. So animals, you know, in order to make this economical and profitable, animals are penned up in tight quarters and they're cramped together. They're stressed out. It's often unsanitary. So you'll have thousands of animals just packed together, walking around in their own shit, and it's just not healthy. And so these conditions can suppress immunity and make animals more susceptible to health issues. And because they're all so packed together, like a virus can just sweep through there really quickly. You know, it's almost like the humans living in slums in tight quarters with poor sanitation, same with animals, like they're all in close quarters with poor sanitation, and it's a disease risk. So on top of that virus issue, there is also antibiotic resistance with bacteria. So with these poor conditions that animals are in, they're always fighting disease there. And so antibiotics are often given to animals to fight the diseases that pop up either when they get sick or sometimes preventatively just to avoid sickness. And there's also been this trend in farming to give antibiotics to fatten up animals. It's just been noticed over the years that if you give it to them regularly, you'll have bigger, fatter animals that you can sell for more money. Now, there's been a growing um, awareness of antibiotic resistance, and so in some places, the use of antibiotics in farming has been reduced um, through just farmers' awareness or through government regulation. But many places in the world, it's just done commonly, and they're just feeding tons of antibiotics to animals. So what happens is that... Um, when animals are given antibiotics, it kills most of the bacteria, but not all of them. So a few of the bacteria survive, and the ones that survive are the ones most resistant to that antibiotic. 
And so you do this over and over and over again, you end up with bacteria that the antibiotic just won't work for. And so, you know, this is happening on farms for all kinds of animals. It's also happening in fish farms, a lot of antibiotic use. So through this process, then we end up with bacteria in us, we get sick with it, that our antibiotics don't work for. Because it's often the same antibiotics that are used on farms that are used in us, that our doctor might prescribe when we catch an illness. This is all the same antibiotics. And so we can end up with bacteria, um, and it happens a variety of ways. You know, it can, on the farm, come from animals that a farmer catches and then spreads to somebody. Or it can come to you in your meat that you eat, um, especially if it's not cooked fully. Um, or it can happen in wastewater. So a lot of these farms have shit from the animals just running into the nearby river and um, it gets into the environment that way or into the groundwater. So through these various ways, humans end up with these antibiotic-resistant um, diseases. And so now people are getting more and more infections where antibiotics just don't work for them. And people are getting sick and they're dying and there's just no treatment available for them. So currently, worldwide, it's estimated about 700,000 people die from drug-resistant infections every year. By 2015, people estimate that could increase to 10 million deaths per year. 10 million people every year dying because their antibiotics don't work anymore. That's the trend that we're on. Now just compare that 10 million with COVID-19. So over the course of this, at the time of me recording this, about 3.1 million people have died worldwide. That 10 million would be three times that every year from drug-resistant infections. So it's a very serious problem that's brewing and there's just not enough um, action on this so far. Also, I want you to consider that in addition to the millions of people dying from those diseases, it also would mess up a lot of other healthcare because it would be dangerous to go get a surgery. A lot of um, bacteria lives in hospitals and when you go and get a surgery, even a routine um, thing, people are often given antibiotics to reduce that risk of infection as you get the procedure. But without that, you could go in for a simple like knee replacement and come out with a deadly uh, disease that kills you. You know, so it really would reduce the amount of um, medical procedure that would be safe. And also a very similar thing for childbirth. You know, you might have women like afraid to go to a hospital because they don't want to get sick from a deadly disease. And then they're having babies at home or other settings that are less uh, safe. So it's a really serious issue that's brewing and that needs attention. So even more risk of pandemic is coming from virus research labs around the world. Interestingly, by some of the same people who are studying viruses and trying to keep us safer from viruses are actually creating tons of risk while they do that. So 
there's been um, there's been talk about COVID nineteen coming from a lab in Wuhan, China. Now, I would like as I talk about this to sidestep a lot of the political argument that has happened around this issue because I don't like the way this conversation has gone and also my own views on it are different than a lot of people that I've heard talk about this. So last year, U.S. President Donald Trump and some fellow Republicans um, were saying publicly that COVID-19 definitely came from a lab in China. And then people on the other side of politics argued against it and said, no, that's wrong. It's just a dumb conspiracy theory. You're telling lies and all this stuff. So you've got one camp of people saying it definitely happened. And you've got another camp of people saying it definitely did not happen. And to my knowledge, actually, nobody knows at this point because there's a lot of uncertainty in the science as people have looked into it. And also, China is not a really open society, so it's hard for information to be shared freely. And I don't feel high confidence that we're ever going to figure out definitely where COVID-19 came from. So my interest is not really in like finger pointing and blaming and all that kind of thing. I just want to look at the risks and solve problems so that we can be safer. And regardless of where COVID-19 came from, there is a serious risk of viruses escaping from these labs because there have been instances in the past where stuff has escaped. Luckily, as far as I know, it hasn't been a big pandemic situation coming from these labs, but the risk is definitely there. And so instead of just fighting in like over what happened with COVID-19, I'd rather we all just get together and solve this risk because it's serious. So something, and I want to just point out too, that it's not just in China. Like there's these labs around the world where people are studying viruses and the intention by these people is good, I believe. Like they're trying to keep us safer. They're trying to understand viruses better so that they can come up with the next treatments and medications and vaccines and all this by simply understanding how viruses work and also what viruses are out there in nature so they could like see it coming. So one type of activity that's happening is um, scientists are collecting animal specimens from nature around the world, bringing them back to the lab to study the viruses that are in them. Um, this could be worthwhile, but even this activity has a lot of risk because once you have that virus in the lab, um, it can escape. So for instance, the lab in Wuhan, China, this is in an urban area. This isn't like, you know, out, you know, buried in a mountain or something. This is like around people. And so they're going out to nature, crawling around in caves to find bats and then bring them to the lab in the city to study. So the virus that maybe would have just stayed out there with the bats or stayed out there in the cave is now being brought into an urban area where mistakes can happen. So... I feel a little ambivalent about this. I mean, I'm not a scientist and it's hard for me to know if the benefits outweigh the risks, 
but I can at least see a legitimate purpose there. But in other cases, though, they're actually manufacturing viruses that are far more dangerous. So they're not just taking it from nature and looking at it under a microscope or something. They're actually changing the viruses. This is called gain-of-function research. And so they make viruses stronger, more deadly, more infectious, and then study them. So the intention, I believe, is to sort of see, you know, that super deadly infectious virus, let's study it before it actually evolves in nature and then understand it. So one way they do this is by infecting animals with a virus. And they do this over and over and over to get it to mutate and evolve quicker. They often do this in ferrets in the lab, because um, I guess ferrets have an immune system that's similar to humans. And so they'll give it to ferrets, and then they'll pull it out, and they'll give it to more ferrets, and then pull it out and give it to more ferrets. And they do this many, many times to where they can get it to evolve into something different than what it started as. But then another way is to just use gene editing. And this technology is becoming more powerful and more prevalent and easier to use. So they can change part of a virus, or they can assemble pieces from a few different viruses and put them together to see what happens. Or even technology is rolling along that can just make virus from scratch. So you just give it the genetic code, you know, the series of letters that represent the pieces of that DNA, give it to a machine, and it'll just build that virus for you. So in labs, they're making these insanely dangerous viruses to study. But then what if it escapes from the lab? Um, and mistakes have happened. And I want to point you to the show, show notes where I've included several materials, links to these, documenting some of these mistakes that have happened. So that you can understand this isn't just me speculating. This is actually, this is happening. Um, so human error just happens. Like that's part of life. People can always make mistakes. Even in a very high security lab with tons of safety precautions, humans can always screw up, you know? So if people are tired or distracted or just have a bad day of work or they're in a bad mood, they might make a mistake. Another issue is inadequate training. So it's been documented that, um, I forget the year, 2017, 2018, at the lab in Wuhan, China, there were outside visitors from other countries just sort of checking it out. And everybody realized that the training of staff there was inadequate for the very risky material that they're working with there. Um, also, poor labeling can happen. Somebody can just make a mistake as they label a vial. Um, there's this other issue where people were studying Ebola and sent Ebola virus vials from one lab to another. They sent it to a wrong lab. And so, and it wasn't a high security lab that's prepared to deal with that very dangerous material. Um, or there's another instance where people found vials of smallpox, which has been basically wiped out among humans, um, you know, from a vaccination campaign. But it's a very dangerous disease, and people just found vials of smallpox that were in an unlabeled box. Like, nobody knew it was there, and it was just sitting for years, and people found it. 
So mistakes happen, um, but then also you can have malfunctioning equipment. So these are very, um, this is high tech areas, you know, so there's like sealed pressure chambers so the air can't flow out or leaks can't happen. Um, in one situation, there was this pressure chamber, like basically the exit and entrance door that broke. And so there's air starting to rush out this door and there's people on the other side of the door pushing against it to keep the door closed because it was broken and it wouldn't latch. That happened, you know, or there was another situation where the showers broke. So people who work in these labs, when they're done working, they're supposed to go take a shower in case they have a little residue of virus on them, they can wash that off. The showers broke, and so she couldn't take a shower, and she just left and went and showered somewhere else, but she could have been bringing virus with her as she left. Um, there's been documented cases of maintenance being underfunded, so just equipment breaks down, does get fixed. Um, and there have been documented escapes from labs. So there was one in England where, um, what the heck is it called? Hoof and mouth disease um, in cattle escaped a couple times in like rapid succession, like two weeks apart. And, you know, they were having this raging um, disease among animals of that illness. And so there's been other escapes and other stuff has gotten out. Luckily, it wasn't the big pandemic germs, but like stuff does get out of these places. And then finally, even if you've invented a system and equipment and everything that's secure, there's always bad people in the world who can like mess things up. There's always bad actors. So imagine if there's somebody in a lab who's having mental health issues and maybe just isn't a good person and isn't vetted properly, or they get paid to like steal something from the lab, like this kind of stuff can break down. So I'm not really a fan of creating this extra risk in the labs. And I've also heard, heard many virologists who discourage this kind of activity and tell us that, they're, that it's not worth the risk. There's not enough upside. There's not enough scientific importance to doing, you know, to making these more deadly viruses um, and discourage its use. So I think there needs to be a fuller conversation among society so that it's not just the people in the virus lab making the decisions about how much risk society is going to tolerate. I think that should be a society-wide decision so that we can have a say in how that's going to work. Political officials have some oversight and are making decisions about what's the right amount of risk. And then one more potential pandemic risk could be from terrorism. So Consider the virus labs we were just talking about and the work that they do there. The technology used in those labs might soon be coming to a basement near you. So right now, to do that work of editing viruses requires expensive specialized equipment and lots of training. You got to really know what you're doing to do that. But over time, technology tends to spread 
it gets easier to use and it gets cheaper and that's the trend in these um, biotechnology tools. I want to just guide you to another episode that I did about biotechnology and chemicals and you know harmful things like that where I talk about this in more depth but basically these biotechnology tools are following the path that we've seen with computing. So decades ago, computers used to be these enormous machines that were very expensive and required specialized knowledge to use them. But now there's computers everywhere. There's a very powerful computer in your cell phone, in your pocket, and it's easy to use. Like anybody can use this stuff. And so the tools of biotechnology and virus editing, they're getting smaller, easier, cheaper, and everyone will be able to buy them. So when that gets in the hands of a mentally ill person, that could be dangerous. So most people are not going to do that. Most people are responsible. But consider mass shooters so that are even suicidal. You know, there are people who pick up a bunch of guns and go into a public place and kill as many people as they can and then kill themselves. Or they use a vehicle and run it into a crowd of people and kill people that way. Um, these kinds of folks are out there. They always have been, always will be. There's just always some small portion of the population that is kind of mentally unhinged. But now when that technology becomes widespread and that unhinged person can cause huge amount of damage by making a virus and releasing it and killing millions of people, that's just an extraordinary amount of risk. And so we need to pay attention to that front and control the rollout of that type of technology so we can control who gets their hands on it and uses it. So yeah, that's a lot of risk. Um, I hope you're seeing that we have a problem on our hands and we need to get to work. Just a recap of the risks that we've talked about. Um, we've got a very high population. We have a crowded world. Uh, poverty makes that worse because there's a lack of sanitation and healthcare. We have an interconnected world where disease can spread easily through global trade and travel. Um, we're destroying nature. We're warming the climate. We're making mass-produced meat. There's virus labs where accidents can happen. Or there could be a terrorist that actually causes a pandemic on purpose. Do you think we should get ready? I'm sorry to scare you. I don't mean to make you depressed. I just want to like have us wake up and pay attention and get to work here. Um, it's important for us to be mature and responsible and just see reality clearly for what it is and do the best we can. So at this point, I don't want you to just go away and run and hide um, because there's a lot we can do and we can get control of this situation. Before we talk solutions, I want to just notice a couple blind spots that we seem to have in our society, in our politics, that are necessary to like work with and like think differently. One is that people seem to be willing to tolerate too much risk and don't plan ahead. 
So we've had public health experts warning us for years that this pandemic risk was possible. Like years before COVID-19 came along, they were telling us, hey guys, this could happen. And in fact, I've been worried about pandemic risk since about 2002 when SARS happened, an epidemic in Asia. And I'm not even a public health expert or a doctor. And I wasn't even like hearing conversation about this. I was just seeing the news and seeing public places where everybody's wearing masks because they're afraid of this disease. And I thought about the general trends of the world where we're more and more interconnected and urbanized. And there's these hotspots of poverty and slums um, in our increasing population. It just sort of seemed natural that we would have more epidemics over time. And here we are. If I was able to see that, why didn't our governments prepare and prevent this and get ready for it? Like, that's the big question. Like, I'm not saying this to, like, you know, blame and shame and make people feel bad, but it's like, we need to understand collectively, why are we not able to look at future risks and rally ourselves before bad things happen? And just to remind you, like, pandemics are not our only risk. Like, we've got climate change and screwing up the environment and nuclear weapons and this other serious risk where we're kind of asleep at the wheel. We're not paying attention and we're not taking action to deal with them. So we need to understand our general human nature and the nature of our government and society of like why we're willing to tolerate risk like this. Another issue is we don't seem to look globally at these things and see it as a worldwide, a worldwide situation that requires a worldwide solution. So remember that disease can pop up anywhere in the world and then spread and affect everyone in the world. So we really need international cooperation. And among like news media and politicians and people I have conversations with, I don't hear people talking about the world and these world solutions. People tend to focus just on their own country and it's probably a little more so in the United States where I am. Um, Americans seem to think they're the center of the universe and everything outside they don't like, think about, unfortunately. There's this empty spot in people's thinking. But if somebody in the United States or Europe or whatever wants to be safer from illness, they need to be thinking about the rainforests of Malaysia or Brazil or the animal markets in China. You know, this is a world thing. And if leaders of countries want to keep their own people safe, they need to think not only about their own country, but they need to think about the world and rally together and do some things here. So I think this focus on country-level solutions is because we don't yet have the strong international systems that people focus on because there's some of that, but it's not strong enough. And so people tend to just look to their own country to protect themselves and solve problems. So you're going to see as we go along that I'm going to talk, you know, primarily about the global aspects of all this kind of stuff. Solutions need to happen at all levels of government from, you know, local, state, 
national and now international, but I'm going to focus more on the global, uh, you know, dynamics here. Also, I just want us to remember that we have enough money for what we need to do. So estimates are, you know, in solving our pandemic threats and protecting us from this may only cost 2% of the economic damage that was done by COVID-19, which cost trillions of dollars to the world economy. Um, like I mentioned before, world governments in total at this point have spent about $20 trillion in economic stimulus. If we had spent just a small percentage of that on pandemic preparedness and prevention, we'd be in a completely different situation right now. And so um, if we can come up with $20 trillion for economic stimulus, we can come up for a little more to like prepare for this threat. So first, just we need to deal with all the risks I've been talking about so far. So we need to protect nature and climate. We need to overcome poverty. We need to reconsider eating meat. We need to stop this gain-of-function research in virus labs. We need to tightly control the rollout of biotechnology tools so that uh, we don't have terrorism. So that's all for starters. Just reduce the risk. But then on top of that, we need various systems to deal with both the public health and the economics of all this. Um, as I considered sharing this with you, I was tempted to have like a public health section of my talk and then an economic section of my talk. But I find that they're so tightly wound that you have to deal with both of them together. Um, you know, strong public health worldwide means that we're going to keep a stronger economy. But then economics seems to decide public health because there's these wealth disparities in the world. So there's poorer countries that are part of our overall pandemic risk, but they don't always have the money to take the steps needed to reduce risk. So we need to help these poorer countries, and we need to realize that it's not just an act of charity. It's really a matter of self-preservation for all of us to help us beat this current virus and avoid the future ones. I'm going to remind you a very important concept that we need to reduce mutations of virus as it spreads the world because as it mutates, it's going to evade vaccines. And so this current situation of countries hoarding vaccines and just vaccinating their own people, it's just not going to work. Like what really works is to deal with the whole world. So let's look at some pieces of what a strong international system might look like. Um, I'm first going to describe pieces of a global public health system that is not like country by country systems. This is one interconnected system that serves everyone on the planet. Um, some of this is happening through international agencies, but much, much more needs to happen. So one element of this is constant research and monitoring of what 
um, diseases are traveling around the world. So this has different components. Um, you know, one of it, it basically we're talking a, an early warning system so that when a disease is starting to emerge, we can jump on it and contain it before it spreads to the whole world and causes a pandemic. So some of this can happen through um, like doctor's offices being hooked into a database. So if in a particular area you start to see like, oh, a few hundred people showed up this week with these symptoms, then you know there's something going on there. And then you can dive in and test those people and try to get to the bottom of what's causing it. Um, that's good for the people who got sick because they'll get better treatment, but also offers some containment so that it doesn't spread. Um, one other interesting idea I've heard about on this sort of monitoring front could be um, a system that monitors internet searches. Google ends up knowing a ton about us based on what we search for. And it's very common that when people get sick with something they haven't had before, they'll go online and start to learn about it and put their symptoms in there and see if they can figure it out. So um, you might be able to use that in order to show us when there's something brewing uh, disease-wise. And then combined with that, you need to have teams of doctors and other personnel ready for deployment to these hotspots. So they need to be hired, ready, um, well-staffed, well-funded, well-equipped, and just ready to roll. So that if we learn today there's a disease brewing, that tomorrow those people can be on a plane and be on their way there to go investigate and start to take action and contain this. Um, worldwide, we need to have huge stockpiles of equipment that's necessary, medical equipment. So personal protective equipment, uh, PPE. So masks, gowns, face shields, gloves, cleaning supplies, like all this stuff that keeps our healthcare workers safe as they treat patients. It's just simply tragic that during COVID-19, we had healthcare workers treating COVID patients and they didn't have masks. They didn't have like the basic stuff that they need. They're like reusing masks day after day after day as they're dealing with COVID people because we just weren't prepared. Um, and the same goes for medicines. So we should predict like what are some of the common medicines that might be useful for something that comes up and then just have huge stockpiles of those ready so that if we determine that one of them works, we've got thousands or millions of doses ready just in case. Or we need stockpiles of portable facilities. Um, you know, so basically like tent clinics or in trailers or buses or however you want to do that. But stuff that could be rushed to a hotspot to deal with like the overflowing hospitals that we've seen. Like we've seen hospitals during COVID where they don't have room for all the, the people who are sick. And they also didn't have room for all the dead people, unfortunately. Like you need to have facilities ready, but you can't like just build an extra hospital quickly, you know, so you can have portable facilities that are just rushed there. And one added benefit of that is that you can take your sick people and keep them segregated from the main hospital population. 
so that people going in for other conditions don't get sick with that disease. So, you know, there's probably more aspects of this, but basically we need tons of stockpiled like equipment ready in several locations around the world. And then that can just be sent to places. Um, and then also we need to seriously invest in the World Health Organization and possibly other, you know, global organizations. Um, people at the WHO, I'm just so thankful for. They do such, they serve an important role and they've been working their ass off this last year trying to keep us safe from this pandemic. But everyone realizes that the shortfalls in their organization, it just needs to be restructured and strengthened and given a lot more resources and authority to solve problems for us. So that really is the hub for a lot of these efforts that I'm describing and we just have to invest in it. So another area that we could dramatically improve is around vaccines. It's been pretty remarkable how quickly vaccines were developed for COVID-19. And um, I'm grateful to those people too who have worked on that effort. But the distribution and rollout of these vaccines has been just kind of tragic. Because the way it's playing out right now is healthy and wealthy people are getting vaccinated before other people in the world who need it more because wealthier countries are buying up all the vaccines. There is an effort in the world called the COVAX Alliance, which I have been really excited about. It's a global effort um, with lots of stakeholders around the world to help poorer countries get vaccinated. Um, it's a huge, impressive global cooperation. They've assembled lots of money and made good systems to roll these vaccines out, but they can't get enough vaccine because the wealthier countries have bought them all. And so there's been wealthier countries who express their support for the world and they've given money to this COVAX alliance, but then COVAX can't buy enough vaccine because those same wealthier countries have bought it all. They have more money and they've bid up the price and they make the deals with the companies. And so this wonderful organization that's trying to vaccinate poorer countries can't get their hands on enough of it. The United States at this point now has purchased enough vaccine to vaccinate all American adults three times. You don't need to vaccinate people three times. At the same time, other countries don't have any or they've got very little. Now, we know that the U.S. isn't going to vaccinate everybody three times. And the U.S. government says that their plan is to share the surplus with other countries once all Americans are vaccinated. But it's just a crazy situation. Like, I, you know, I'm an American. Right now, I have just become eligible to get vaccinated. And I don't need it compared to other people. You know, especially compared to a healthcare worker in some other country. Like, I recently had COVID three months ago. So I have some lingering immunity. And I'm healthier than most people. I don't have any pre-existing health conditions. I'm not any kind of frontline worker. 
like I'm not a priority, but my government is going to try to get me to take a vaccine before other people in the world who need it so much more than me. It's kind of a ridiculous situation. Um, now, like I said, the U.S. does plan to give away its surplus supply after all Americans are all set. But even then, I mean, I don't should we see that as an act of generosity and wonderfulness? I mean, Americans just put themselves first. And just note that right now as I speak, there's big outbreaks happening in Brazil, in India, and some other places. Um, but even then, like, should the United States be in charge of this distribution effort? Like, why is the U.S. boss on how this plays out? You know, I don't see that a truly global, fair system would be set up this way, where the U.S. gets to be in charge. Um, but here we are. It just strikes me that the ethics around this are completely broken. And the United States promotes itself as like this world leader of freedom and equality, but we're hogging up the vaccine. Like, that's not equality. And just putting ourselves as boss that's not equality either. I want to see us live up to our values better than we are right now. Another concern I have on this rollout is that the U.S. and other wealthy countries will soon have less motivation or less willingness to pay for other poorer countries to get vaccinated. And so Again, you know, just remind us that vaccines can mutate. And so if we leave poorer countries unvaccinated, it, it's going to come back to bite us. But then also what might happen through all this is we might have a widening divide between rich and poor countries. Like wealth disparity is already an enormous problem in the world that is part of our pandemic risk but also plays into environmental destruction and some other problems. And so we might have, over the next couple years, wealthier countries get vaccinated so that everybody can go back to work and their economy can thrive again even more, but then poorer countries not getting vaccinated. So their hospitals are still overflowing and people can't get to work because they're sick and you've got places still in lockdown trying to deal with the pandemic and their economy is getting even worse. So these next couple years could see an even wider divide and I'm just I'm worried about that. I think we should play it differently. So you know in an ideal system I, you know, I'm not an expert, like I'm not a public health professional, I'm not equipped to design a world distribution effort, but I promise you, if I were to interview experts right now, they would not recommend simply vaccinating all the wealthy countries first and ignoring the poorer places. I don't know of any public prof health professional that would recommend that, but that's kind of how it's playing out. So... Let's consider what some alternatives might be, um, just some general ways to think about it. If I could just play boss and wave my magic wand, I would have these few ideas I would consider. 
One is you could take your vaccines and send them to hotspots that are having outbreaks. Like basically send them to the places where COVID or the future pandemic is worst and hit those places quicker. Or you could have a rational plan where you do the entire world in stages. So first you go around the world and vaccinate the highest priority people. Then you go back and you vaccinate everybody else. So around the world, you might vaccinate healthcare workers first. So you can deal with those overflowing hospitals and give people the treatment they need um, and keep those health systems from getting overwhelmed. You also might do high-risk populations like the elderly or people with chronic health conditions. Take care of them first. And you might deal with high-risk populations that are de living in tight quarters um, where they're at higher risk. So people in prisons or in nursing homes or in the military or living in slums, like deal with those people first. Um, you might vaccinate teachers so that you can safely keep schools open because schools are incredibly important for kids and their education but also for their parents so their parents can like go to work during the day that has an economic benefit so you know that's the kind of rational system i'd like to see happening around the world instead of everybody competing for vaccine Another problem we've seen is competing for all these other kinds of supplies necessary, like the PPE or testing kits or treatments or medications, syringes, all those kind of supplies that you need to manage a pandemic. We've had this bidding war around the world. We've had competition of countries trying to outbid each other to get their hands on these um, limited supplies. Or even just in the United States, you've had individual states bidding against each other and competing to try to get supplies. It's just crazy making. Like there's no sensible, like there's nothing sensible about this. So we need to develop systems that distribute these things in a reasonable way that is based on like solving a pandemic, not just whoever has the most money. And then... I want to just remind us that hopefully soon we get COVID-19 under control and hopefully we have a calm period before a next pandemic comes. I want us to really use that interim wisely so that we're putting all these systems in place before the next pandemic comes around. These systems by which we're going to manage distribution of vaccines or medications or equipment or whatever else. And also these systems to um, detect disease and um, react to it. So let's use our time wisely. My next batch of ideas for you is very focused on the wealth disparity in the world between um, richer and poorer countries. I want to just remind you that our economy is global and interconnected. Like people think about their economy in terms of their own country or their own place, but we're all in this together. And so if we do want to really revive our economy post-pandemic, we really need to deal with the world as a whole. 
because I don't see that we can really revive the economy if we've got much of the world still struggling. Um, and so again, this help of poorer countries is not an act of charity. It's really for the collective common good for everybody. And, and this is both an economic issue and is a public health issue. So, you know, during this pandemic, wealthier countries were able to um, just pump money out into their economy for stimulus. Um, so in my country, in the United States, they put out stimulus checks where like every American got a check for doing nothing. Um, they also expanded unemployment uh, benefits so that people's whose work stopped could still like eat and pay the rent and everything. So it's just interesting that in wealthier countries, people got paid to stay home. And so, you know, people doing nothing, they could stay home and still order stuff on Amazon and have it delivered. And the people making that stuff are still working people delivering that stuff are still working. That stuff's coming from other countries where people are still like out there working. So, you know, we might need to help other poor countries to help people stay home as necessary, especially when they're having a big outbreak and, and a hotspot. So, you know, there's lots of places in the world where if people don't work, they don't eat. Like, they're not even living paycheck to paycheck. They're living day to day. Like, if they don't work today, they're not going to eat dinner today. Like, that's how a lot of people live. And so they don't have the luxury of just doing a lockdown and staying home. And so that's a big public health issue when sometimes lockdowns are necessary. And, you know, they have been with COVID, but just imagine that future pandemic that might be even more severe, like lockdowns might be an even more important tool to manage a disease. And so if we've got parts of the world where people are too poor and they can't stay home and they don't have support, that's a health issue, you know. So wealthier countries may want to put some resources out there so that um, they can do that. And then you know, richer countries have done this economic stimulus that are able to print more money and get away with it. But poorer countries don't have that ability. Um, I'll talk more about this stuff in a future episode about the economics around like money creation and such. But there's a big difference between what wealthier countries and poorer countries can get away with in terms of like creating new money. And so unfortunately, wealthier countries are able to print money. Poorer countries end up borrowing money and going more into debt as a result of just trying to stay afloat during a pandemic. And so again, it's one additional widening of the disparity between rich and poor countries that we need to deal with. Another issue is strengthening basic healthcare systems around the world. So I've talked some about the sort of public health systems for like, you know, monitoring and reacting to an outbreak and that kind of stuff. But we also need to think about just basic health care that, you know, people can just go to a doctor when they get sick. And so, 
when a pandemic rolls around, this is extra important. I mean, obviously, so that people can get treatment for whatever health issue they're going through. But people's relationship with a doctor, this is where they can get their vaccines. This is where they can get their treatments. This is where they can get testing to know if they're sick so they don't give it to other people. This is where they can get basic information about health issues. And so in parts of the world where people don't have that basic access to medical facilities, it makes it so much harder to solve a pandemic and, and fight it. And then, even just in a preventative way, if people have access to health care, they're going to be healthier. They're going to have a stronger immunity. And so we need to just deal with the basic health of people in poorer places. So if they have no health care, poor sanitation, and maybe even poor access to food, that's not good for one's immune system. And that's going to make them more likely to catch and spread disease. Another aspect of all this is hunger, like people need to eat and it's harder to eat during a pandemic when you can't go out and work or you can't grow food or food doesn't get transported and all that stuff. So as of November 2020, a few months ago, the United Nations estimated that this year in 2021, we'd have about 235 million people in the world at risk of starvation. Now, there's always some millions of people, unfortunately, that are at risk, but that number is an increase of 40% beyond pre-pandemic. So this pandemic just put millions and millions of people into a food insecure situation. Um, in that report in November, they said that they were having a shortfall of $22 billion dollars in order to like get food to people in an emergency way. And maybe that number's changed and maybe they've come up with it, but like that's not an insurmountable amount of money. Like Jeff Bezos, head of Amazon, could just cover that out of his pocket. Like that's even a small portion of the additional money he's made during this pandemic. So like there's no shortage of money to handle people's food needs in the world. It's just like a willingness to do it and uh, investing in those systems. In addition to just simply getting people some food to eat, we also need to change the way people eat and help them eat differently to reduce this um, pandemic risk from animals. So remember the wet markets where people are bringing in wild animals to feed people? Um, that needs to change. But you can't simply shut down the wet markets because people are depending on that for food. So you need to like transition away from that. Um, you can do that partly through safer meat agriculture. So instead of this crazy making situation that's, you know, adding pandemic viruses, you can do that farming more safely. Um, but that's an investment required. And we want to try to get people away from meat, hopefully. Um, and there's a bunch of environmental benefits also to reducing meat consumption and, you know, help people get more plant-based protein, um, you know, beans, nuts, soybeans, etc. cetera. Um, now, wealthier countries have all the resources they need to make this transition away from meat, which I hope that they will do. 
but poorer countries don't have the same kind of resources and flexibility, partly because they're lacking the money to change those systems, but also their people are really on the edge. Like you don't have much buffer to be tinkering and uh, experimenting. So you just need some resources funneled into those places if you want to deal with those risks. Another thing to help people get through pandemics is to help countries stockpile essentials that they're going to need. So if they have lockdowns or if they have supply chain disruptions, there should be warehouses full of food, full of medicine, full of fuel, you know, maybe bottled water, like whatever really essential things you need to get through a hard time stockpile that now because supply chain disruptions happen during pandemics. Um, you know, this last time around, at least where I live, it was mainly like toilet paper and, you know, some food items in the store got scarce. But in poorer places, that could be a really tough time. And all countries should be stockpiling, but some countries, they just don't have the surplus money to be stockpiling. So I think we could help them out. One other thing is to deal with the clean water and sanitation issues. I just remind you that 3 billion people around the world do not have clean water and can't wash their hands. Um, I saw a recent study showing that we could provide clean water and sanitation for the world at the same time as we better manage the world's limited and dwindling freshwater resources. And we could do that for about $1 trillion per year. Now, $1 trillion, that's a chunk of money, and some people are going to balk at it and say that we can't afford it. But that is far less than the over $20 trillion that's been spent reacting to COVID-19. I'd rather invest in the water systems myself. And then there's a lot of other infrastructure that we could invest in. And, you know, if we could get some money to flow from wealthier countries to poorer countries, it could serve multiple purposes at once. So... Like, we want to deal with this pandemic risk, but then we also want to make them economically resilient. So if you could funnel money into places and invest in healthcare systems, in water and sanitation, in environmental protection, in uh, climate, you know, clean energy and such, like... These are all investments that will make us safer from pandemics, but also will generally make those places more resilient and help their economies be stronger and help their people make a living more easily. So that's highly efficient money because that money can solve multiple purposes at the same time. I'd love to see more of that. We need to just remember that we can afford this stuff. I mean, some of it does get expensive, but I don't see how it could be more expensive than the $20 trillion that we've been spending already. And there's more money coming. So I've talked about a lot of um, dark, scary things in this presentation, but I do want you to know that we have such huge opportunity right now, right in front of us, short term, like we're in it right now, tons of opportunity. 
because we've had all this economic stimulus being spent by wealthier countries and more is on the way. It's continuing to happen. Now, we can stimulate economies by simply throwing money around. Like you could dump it out of helicopters and it would help the economy. You know, you could spend it wherever and then that money circulates the economy and keeps the economy afloat. So you could just spew it around in a bunch of things, but you also could take that and spend it in a targeted fashion to strengthen public health systems, to protect the environment and climate, to fight poverty. And while you deal with those issues, all of that is creating jobs and stimulating the economy. So right now we're in the middle of this huge wave of spending that is such an opportunity. And I just hope that we don't waste it. I hope that we really focus and do this right. So I'm about to wrap this up. But I have a couple key concepts that I would love for you to remember and hang on to. One is that no country will be healthy or economically strong unless the whole world is resilient to pandemics. Also, wealthy countries refusing to share can be self-destructive. And finally, we will have more pandemics. So we need to build strong international systems for prevention and for recovery. All right, friends, thank you so much for joining us. I really, joining me, I really appreciate you uh, being here. And um, until next time, let's just try to be the best people we can be. Talk to you soon. Thanks for listening, but you're not done yet. We can't change the world if we keep the joy of saving the human race to ourselves. Help me spread the word and help this movement grow. Please subscribe to the show, both the podcast and the YouTube channel. Leave ratings or reviews, which encourages others to listen. Share this show with others on your social media. Even better, just tell a friend about it and have a good conversation about the state of the world. These things really make a difference. I hope you can help the show grow and reach a larger audience. I'm grateful for your help. Thank you. And please stay in touch with me. I love to get feedback, suggestions, and questions. Go to the website at joyofsavingthehumanrace.com. At the website, you'll learn more about the show, and you can sign up to get occasional email updates. Thanks to Moby for the show's theme music, and thanks to you for being here. All right, we're done for today. Be well. I'll talk to you soon.